We'll turn uh, back to uh, 1 John today. We'll continue in this service and uh, in this uh, series on 1 John, which I've entitled Joyful Fellowship with God and Man. And this, uh, this series is one that will continue through the end of the year, God willing. Today we're up to chapter 3 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 and with the theme, Why Jesus Came. So there's a lot of statements in this, in this uh, little letter that John wrote where God teaches us the purpose of Jesus coming and we'll kind of focus in on, on those on our Christmas Eve service. But um, today we have a particular statement of that in 1 John 3, 1 through 10. So let's listen to God's holy word and give our attention to it. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, you have authored this letter through your servant John. And O Lord, today we look at it desiring to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to Make that which is dead live, and that you would enliven us to be able to to live as you have called us to live, that you would illuminate our minds and hearts to be able to see in a way that we have never seen before the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has come to do, and to be encouraged in that, and to seek him for all that we need. Oh Lord, we pray this in his name, amen. This, this passage presents to us a really big picture of the world. When you think about the big picture of the world, there, people immediately go to the problems of the world because there are many. And we might ask, what is the source of the problems of the world? Now, many common perspectives might be that it, it is government, either too much or too little, that it is lack of food and security or jobs or opportunities, that it's lack of people, that it's lack of of people in our lives who care for us and so on. But what the Bible teaches us and what we have in this passage instruction on is that the basic problem is, is not any of those things, even though they may be real problems. 
but that the basic problem is the rupture between God and human beings. And the Bible has a word for that. It calls that rupture sin. And what this means is that we live lives that are not the way they are supposed to be. And out of this fact comes all of our internal struggles and comes all of the injustices between human beings and all the things, all the other problems that flow out of it. And as soon as you get that the basic problem the Bible is dealing with is the rupture between God and human beings, then you can easily see what the, what the Bible's solution is, which is we need someone to go between us and God to fix it. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. And that is what this passage teaches us about, that we have that person who's come between God and man to put us back together, and so to bring healing and restoration to the world. And so it teaches us why Jesus has come, because he is the mediator. He's that one who comes to bring healing where there is sin. And so what I want us to do uh, this morning is to explore that in depth from this passage. And so what we're going to see is the need for Christ's coming, the purpose for Christ's coming, and the result of Jesus' coming. So the need, the purpose, and the result of Jesus' coming. So let's see first how this passage teaches us the need for Jesus' coming. Well, the background of this passage and, and what is taught here in, in, the, in the Bible as a whole is that uh, we didn't get here by accident or chance, but that God made us. He is our creator, and he is the sovereign Lord of this world. And as a result, we are meant to live in gratitude to him. We're meant to live in obedience to him. He's the center of things. We are not. And so all is meant to be in service to him. And we're meant to live out of trust in the Lord our God. But, of course, that's not the way people often live. And what this passage teaches us is that there is Sin. Sin is living contrary to this fact that God is the creator, that he's the Lord, that he's the center of the world. Instead of living according to the law of God that he's created in the world, we are a law unto ourselves. We put ourselves at the center of the universe. That's how John describes 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It means that What God has established is the way the world ought to be and the way the world is meant to run. Sin is living contrary to that. As if we were the center of the universe and as if we are a law unto ourselves to be able to do whatever we wanted. And so what is the law that God has established? The law that God has established is that we would obey, trust, and serve God, honoring him in all things. And then on a horizontal level between human beings, that we, would, that we would honor, love, care for other people, live according to the order he has established, that we would allow other people to have their things and we would have our things. We would honor and care for one another at the same time. That is the law of God. It's embodied in the Ten Commandments and many other places in the Bible. Another word that the Bible use, uh, that is used here to describe the way things are supposed to be is righteousness. Righteousness. And what this means is that we live in a way that we fulfill our duty towards God and man. It means that we have a concern for God's glory, and it means that we have a concern for other people. But the fact is, we often live unrighteously. 
either just completely focusing on ourselves uh, or, or doing things totally contrary to our duty. It means that we ignore seeking God's glory. It means that we, don't, we only think about ourselves and our own immediate interests. And this is to live in a way that is unrighteous. The righteous person has concern, a general concern for humanity and a concern for the glory of God. And it is obvious that this is how most people live. They're, they're mostly concerned about themselves, their own interests, their own survival, their own security, their own prestige. And if it extends beyond that, it's often simply their own immediate interests or those most immediately focused on. They're most immediately focused on like their children or parents. And so this is the reality that we have. And it's this lack of righteousness, this, this presence of sin that makes the world what it is with all its injustices, with all its problems. Now, one thing this Bible te- the Bible teaches us, however, is that there is a bigger reality beyond, behind sin. It teaches us that sin didn't actually begin with human beings. It began with the angels. And there were certain angels who took the good gifts that God had given them and rejected them and rebelled against the Lord. And the leader of them is called the devil because uh, he is a tempter, and, or Satan because he's an accuser. So he gets people to sin, and then he tells God how bad they are, basically. He's here to destroy. And listen to what the Bible says here, 1 John 3 uh, and verse 9. Um, <clears throat> or verse 8, rather. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the, from the beginning. And it says, so that behind the sin that we have is the work of the devil. And so what the devil does is not only simply seeking to get us to do bad things, but he also seeks to get us to not think about the bigger realities of life, about God and his glory, about other people and their needs, and to kind of just live our lives and kind of slide quietly towards the abyss. The reason why sin seems so intractable in ourselves and the world is not just because of our own stubborn pride, but it is also because there is a malevolent power behind sin in this world, and it's because of Satan. That's what this passage teaches us. Now, this may seem weird to many, this idea that there are some sort of other types of beings that are not visible in this world, that we call angels, that oppose the work of God, but the reality is that it's been recognized by, mo- by people throughout history, and they speak of these things. And even more importantly, it's abundantly clear in the Bible. So if you take the testimony of the Bible and you believe the Bible, then there's really no way around this fact. There is that it's not just human beings in this world. It is also the, the angels, both good and bad. And that's part of this fallen world. And it's something we need to be aware of. And it's also something that leads us to the solution. Because it's one thing to look, sometimes we can look at our own problems and say, yeah, I can kind of handle that. But when you see like there's these powerful beings that oppose us and want to do us evil, then it can get quite scary. We might say, we need some help. And that's what the Bible offers to us. And really, when we think about all the things in the world and all the evil, 
it is, can, can be kind of overwhelming. But this passage doesn't just leave us there. It presents to us the problem. It tells us the nature of the problem. It tells us that it's rooted in the rupture between God and human beings. But it also tells us the solution. So that's what I want to see. Secondly, is the purpose of Jesus' coming. Now, every human being that's been born in this world has been one that is born in sin and has committed sin. But what this passage tells us is that there was one human being that was born who is an exception to that, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is without sin. And the interesting thing about this claim, which would seem many ways preposterous, right, for any of us to say we have no sin at all, seems crazy. But Jesus was willing to say, even to his enemies, which of you can convict me of sin? <laughs> so think about that. Think of the people who have opposed you most in your life. And you go to them and say, which of you can show that I have any sin at all? It's such a bold claim. Indeed, it's so bold, it's so out there that usually the type of people who make that type of claim are like egomaniacs. They like have such an inflated view of themselves that it's totally distorted. Or they're insane. They're just deluded. They have no idea. Or they're completely evil trying to, de- to, to deceive people. But the interesting thing about Jesus is when you, when you read about him, when you, say, when you see the type of person he was, you cannot say that he was an egomaniac. You can't say that he was malevolent. And you can't say that he was crazy. Indeed, even the people who don't believe all his claims say, this guy knew how to teach in a way that is really good and that there's a lot we can imitate in his life. And so the only explanation for that is that he actually was who he said he was. As uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He can't be the first two, totally excluded. So he must be what he said, who he said he was, which is the eternal son of God who became a human being lived without sin, died for the salvation of the world, and rose again. That's what we're talking about. But why did he come into the world? Well, we have a clear statement of it in 1 John 3, 4 through 5. What was his purpose for coming into the world? It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. So why did he come? He came in order to put everything back right. Where there was a rupture between God and man, he came to take away all that would separate us from God. He came to take away our sins. All that is opposed to God, all that brings us into such despair in our lives, all that causes us injustice, he came to take it away and so we could be restored in our relationship with God. Not only forgiven, but to live as we were meant to live. And this this action clearly puts him in firm opposition to the devil. And so one of the ways to think about the purpose of Jesus' coming is in relationship to Satan. And here's what it says in verse 8. It says, the reason or the purpose the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the devil's work. The devil made a total wreck of the world. Jesus came to destroy that wreck, which put positively is to put it all back right. This is in line with what God spoke at the very beginning. You know the first person he told the, gave the gospel message to in the Bible? It was Satan. <laughs> so Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and God said to Satan, what you're doing here is not going to last. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He tried to put enmity between God and human beings. God said, I'm going to put enmity between Satan and humans, the woman and her seed, her offspring. And one of those human beings that would come from her, from Eve, one of the, one of the sons of Eve, is going to come and he said, you will crush his heel. You're going to do something to injure the son, this seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. So you might get up after you've been, had your heel crushed. Once your head is crushed, you're not getting up again. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. And that's what the reason Jesus came. And so what this means is that we should rejoice because evil as we see it in the world, as it grieves our heart, as it, as it causes us anger, frustration, worry, panic, despair, is not the last word. The last word is Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That is the word that has primacy over anything that Satan has done or anything that Satan says. And so we should not look out into the world in despair we should look out at the world and say, as bad as it is, Jesus came to set it all back right. All those bad works that are being done by humans and Satan, God has sent his son to destroy them and to put in their place what he intended for the world. And how does he do this primarily? He does it primarily one person at a time. And that's what's described in this passage. That's what we learn from this passage is what is the result of Jesus coming? The result of Jesus coming is the transformation of human beings. He takes a person here and a person there and he takes them from being a son of Satan and he makes them a son or daughter of God. That is what God is doing. That is what Jesus is doing right now. He is taking people out of the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of light. Listen to what he says in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We should be called children of the devil. But he says, this is the love we received, that we have a new name. We're, we're children of a new father, the children of God. And that is what we are. That is the message, that we are adopted into the family of God. And how amazing it is that the God of the universe, who made the stars in the endless expanse of the universe, takes an interest on this little speck of dust and says, looks at the, the people on it, and he says to them, I will take you as my sons and daughters to reign with me forever. 
And this is all the more amazing in light of the fact, as I said, that how he might view us and how he should view us is as criminals in his universe. But instead he takes those who are criminals, who are worthy to be separated from him forever, and he makes them his sons and daughters to reign with him and with Christ forever. There's two aspects to what God does when he makes us his children. The one side is that he makes us legally his children, that we become legally adopted as his children. I've had the privilege of attending ceremonies in, in a courtroom where, where children who were not a part of a family, who were not wanted, were then legally adopted as children of a family who wanted them. And what a beautiful thing it is. And it's fun to see the judges, whose work in many ways is rather dreary, to, have, to be able to, to, uh, to rejoice that day as they see a, a child adopted into that family and legally made a part of a new family. And you can see the judge smiling and get a picture with the baby and so on. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what happens to us. When we accept Christ and we want him in our lives, we accept the offer of the gospel, then we're legally made sons and daughters of God. We're part of his family forever. And that's the first part, that we become legally children of God. But then the second part is that we, we become like our Father. He changes us to make us the people who look like our Father. That we become what, how God would want us to be. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's coming a day when we'll be completely and totally like Jesus in the sense that we will have the exact character as it's intended to be, loving God, loving our neighbor, trusting in the God, hoping in him, and so on. But in the meantime, we're moving towards that. We're becoming more like that. The we, as Paul says, the treasure is hidden in a jar of, jar of clay, but inside that jar of clay that doesn't look that glorious, there's this glorious light. And so all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And so God is changing us to make us like Jesus, his son, in, who was the exact representation of the Father, and who showed us what the Father is like by the way that he lived. And so we're becoming that too. Now there's kind of a shocking statement here that I need to spend a little bit of time on before we, before we conclude, just to help you think through this. He says in, in verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And then he, he says in verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. And so what we could easily think as we read this is, well, wait a minute, I've sinned. Um, I've not done what, I, yesterday I did something that was not right. So does that mean I'm not a child of God? Does that mean that I have actually sinned since I accept Jesus? Does that mean that I really wasn't a child of God? So remember, um, but then we, then we think about this, then we say, well, 
It does seem that I'm a child of God, but yet I, I've, I've fallen many times, I've sinned many times, and I see corruption in myself. And as you look at the, the saints in the Bible, whom God calls his children, you see that they also fell too. So how can we say that your chi- the child of God does not keep on sinning when we ourselves did and the saints did, and it seems like that doesn't seem to fit with our experience? We have to remember what we, what we saw in, in the beginning of 1 John. Remember when I preached on that passage, I said, remember 1 John 1, 8 through 10 as we go through the rest of the book because you've got to read everything in light of that context. What that says to us is if we say we have no sin, then we're a liar. If we say we have not sinned, we're a liar. And so we're to confess our sins and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever keep on sinning or not, it does not continue sinning means, it can't mean that we, don't have, that we come to a time where we don't have to confess our sins or we can say we have no sin. So, but one thing we have to be cautious to, not, to do when we read the Bible is when something doesn't seem to fit or doesn't seem to fit with our experience or with the rest of the Bible and we're like, how do we make sense of that? That we gotta be careful not to say just, well, what does it not mean? In other words, so now we've, we say, okay, we know what that doesn't mean. But we also need to say, well, what does it mean positively? In other words, if we're, we might not be inclined today to say whoever's born of God does not keep on sinning or does not, or does not continue in sin. That may seem a strange way of speaking. We've got to ask, why is that a strange way of speaking? And how could we think about that and understand what God is saying in such a way that we can incorporate it into our thinking so that we begin to think God's thoughts after him? That's what we're after, okay? So let me just suggest to you four ways that we can think positively about this passage. So what does it mean that we don't keep on sinning? Well, it means, first of all, the direction of our lives is in a totally different direction. Instead of the way of just walking in sin, having no regard for God and his glory, or, or not thinking of our neighbor and his good, that we are people now who, begin to th- who, who truly begin to think about God and all of his glory and the good of our neighbor. Secondly, that we are positively turning from sin unto righteousness. That we say, where we see sin in our lives, we want to turn from it to do what is right. If we see something that is opposed to God, it is our desire to turn from it to do what God has called us to do. If we learn of something in ourselves that doesn't line up with who he is, that it's our desire to turn away from it and to become what God wants of us. Third, it means that we, we confess our sins, that when we see it, that we do what John told us to do, to confess our sins so that we might experience forgiveness and grace. We don't just hide it. We don't just run away from it. That when we see our sin, we confess it. And then fourth, we battle against sin. It's a battle. It's a fight. And that we, we see that when we find areas of in our lives and, char- lives and character that are weak, we seek to turn from it. We seek help. We, seek, we build defenses to keep us away from that which is sinful. That's what it means to not continue in sin. We're not just letting it go on. We're turning away from it. And what the Bible tells us here is that that's what happens in the children of God. Now, I have a friend who struggles powerfully with concern over whether or not he is actually a Christian. And all he can hear a lot of times is condemnation. But I know him and I know his life. And I see him and he, what, he's, he's concerned 
that he would follow the Lord. He doesn't want to be in that state. He, when, he, when he does sin, he confesses his sin, and he seeks to battle against it. And that's been the characteristic of his life. And so what I've told him is, I said, you need to believe the, the clear evidence that the seed of God is within you and not listen to the emotions that are so loud that are telling you something different. And so do we. And so do we. So what should we take away from this passage? What should we do with it? Well, I think the main theme is that we should rejoice. Yes, there is a warning that if we continue in sin, if we don't confess our sins, if, if we are, are just going on in the way that we've always gone on, if we don't care about God and his glory, then we're like the devil, and we're going to share in his fate. And we need to hear that warning. But that's not the primary reason that John wrote this. You can see that he doesn't say this primarily to, to warn them. There's other passages that may be focused on the warning. This one is not, this is not one of them. This passage is, is designed to make us rejoice. He's saying, that is what you are, not what you might be. This is what you are, the children of God. And so, for those who are confessing their sins and seeking the Lord, they need to see that this is who they are. There's a power that is at work to destroy the work of the devil. And so as we look out into the world today, and as we see its problems, as we see the things that concern us, we should not let that overwhelm us because we should see that there is hope for our churches, for our schools, for our neighborhoods, for our community, for our nation, for the world, because Jesus Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. And that fact should cause us to look at the world in a very different way. But then when we look within ourselves, it's the same thing. We should have hope for ourselves. We should not look at any sin, any evil pattern of thinking, any habit, anything that we've done in the past and say there's no hope for it. Because the seed of God that is within us is more powerful than the devil. And so you should see that you should not despair. You have the life of Christ in you. You don't need to remain in sin. You don't need to remain stuck. You can live a new life. Those who are bitter can become joyful. Those trapped in lust can learn contentment. Those who hate can learn to love. Those who are fearful can become courageous. Those who struggle to trust can become those of strong faith. Those who despair can learn to hope. This is the seed of new life within us and the power of Christ who's come into this world. Look, everybody. What manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Remember, that is what we are. And now, amen.